Today we conclude our seven-part sermon series entitled, Who's Your One? For the last two months, we've been asked to identify one person we're close to who's not close to the Lord. We've been encouraged to pray for that person every day, at least once a day, for the last 30 days. And we have been taught how to share the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and how to share that gospel through a mechanism called Three Circles. And to this day and beyond this day, we are looking for opportunities to share the good news of Christ with that one person. Along the way, we have examined various one-on-one encounters that Jesus had with people in his ministry. Thus far, uh, we have studied three stories from the Gospel of John, three stories from the Gospel of Luke. In John's Gospel, we examine Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus and the man born blind. In Luke's Gospel, we took a look at Jesus and the woman who anointed his feet with perfume, Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus and the wee little man named Zacchaeus. Today, we come to our seventh story, and I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 8. Now, instinctively and intuitively, some of you are thinking to yourselves, wait a minute. By the time you get to Acts chapter 8, Jesus has already been raised from the dead and ascended into the heavens. And while you're exactly correct, I want to contend this morning that Jesus was on the Gaza road, that he had a one-on-one encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch through the sanctified servant named Philip, that just as Jesus spoke through Philip, to Philip's one, so Jesus will speak through you as you interact with your one. Because the church's greatest evangelistic tool is a person who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. Let me say that again. The church's greatest evangelistic tool is a person who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is is enough. It is with that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 8, I'll begin reading at verse 26. I'll conclude at verse 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. 
Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. The man in our story named Philip is an evangelist. This is not the first time that we've been introduced to Philip. We first meet him in Acts chapter 6. He's one of those Greek-speaking Jews appointed by the church to minister to widows. The criteria for the selection of men like Philip was simply twofold. Number one, that person had to be filled with the Spirit. And number two, full of wisdom. Friends, that's a pretty good epitaph, don't you think? Here lies someone who is full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. This is Philip. When you come to Acts chapter 8, Philip is among the many who are scattered in connection with the persecution of Stephen. We are told, according to Luke in Acts chapter 8, that Philip went to a Samaritan city and he proclaimed Christ there. I want you to feel the full force of that sacred sentence. Don't just skim past it. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. Philip went to a Samaritan city and preached Christ there. Many of you may recall that the purpose statement of the book of Acts is found in the opening chapter, verse 8, when Jesus said to the disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This statement is found on the lips of Jesus. It's given to the ragtag bunch of rednecks, his disciples. And to these individuals, the notion that Jesus was going to give them power so that they could be witnesses all over the place was something that really stoked their fire. They were going to be witnesses. The word witness is the Greek word martis, from which we get the English word martyr. So these guys were going to be witnesses. They were going to testify to the identity of Jesus until their last dying breath. Every evangelist is the same way. Every follower of Jesus is a witness, a martyr of Christ, one who bears, one who bears testimony to the identity of Jesus till our very last dying breath. Jesus said, you're going to be my witness in Jerusalem. Now these guys could get excited about that. After all, that was their town. And they were going to be able to take the gospel to the streets. They were excited about that. Jesus said, you're going to go to Judea. This too was something that made them very enthusiastic and excited because Judea represented the Old Testament region of the southern kingdom of Judah. Jesus told these seafaring sailors that you're going to have an adventure that's going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they thought to themselves, fantastic, we're excited about that. But in the middle of that sacred sentence, You find that Jesus says, you're going to take the gospel to Samaria. Now, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. The animosity went back 700 years. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. They deported many of the Israelite men, and they imported Assyrian men. Those Assyrian men began to intermingle and intermarry with the Israelite women. The children that were produced from an Assyrian man and an Israelite woman were known as Samaritans. They had a a flair of Judaism, but they had a foul stench of Assyrian paganism. To a devout Jew, a Samaritan was regarded as a second-rate citizen. In fact, following the Babylonian captivity, when Nehemiah and Ezra come back to rebuild the wall and the temple respectively, they do not permit the Samaritans to work side by side with the Jews. 
The Samaritans get so huffy and puffy about it, they take their own brick and mortar, they go to Mount Gerizim, and there they say, we're going to build our own temple to God. This deep-seated animosity was transgenerational. It was, it was embedded into people. By the days of Jesus, I mean, Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. This is why it's so shocking that in John chapter 4, John tells us that Jesus had to go to Samaria. Most Jewish men would go out of their way as to not step foot in Samaritan soil. But Jesus had to go through Samaria because he made a special trip for a special person at a well. And he told that woman how she could be saved. Elsewhere in a story, Jesus made a Samaritan the hero of his story. You and I call it the parable of the good Samaritan. I mean, these experiences and these well-spun stories, they would have shocked the ears of the first century listener. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 8, we find that, that Philip goes to a Samaritan city, and he proclaims Christ there. Geographically, Samaria is the land that's sandwiched between Israel to the north and Judea to the south. But symbolically, Samaria represents the last person on the planet you would want to introduce to Jesus. That begs the question, who is your Samaritan? Who is the last person in your life that, let's just be honest, that you would want to introduce to Jesus. Maybe it's somebody who's hurt you and harmed you along the way. Maybe it's somebody who doesn't think like you, act like you, share your same values. Maybe it's somebody who doesn't vote like you, walk like you, talk like you. Maybe it's somebody who has a lifestyle that, that you just see as, as something that is completely uh, abhorrent. Maybe it is a person who has a different skin color. Maybe it's an individual from another part of the world. Maybe it's somebody across the street. Maybe it's somebody across the globe. Maybe it's somebody who doesn't and share your same experiences? Who is your Samaritan? Who is the last person on the planet that you would want to introduce to Jesus? All of us have Samaritans. Please don't sit there in a pious way and say to yourself, Pastor, I don't have any Samaritans. Liar, liar, pants on fire. All of us, all of us have Samaritans. All of us have people in our lives that we would want to introduce to Jesus and all of us have people in our lives that we don't want to introduce to Jesus. Who is that Samaritan? Who is the last person on the planet that you would want to introduce to Jesus? These are the people Philip goes to. He goes to a Samaritan city and he proclaims Christ there. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 8, in the first seven or eight verses, Luke says that when the people in that city heard what Philip had to say, saw how he lived, they paid close attention to him. Friends, your Samaritans will pay close attention to you so long as what you say and what you do complement each other. Your Samaritan will not listen to you if what you say and what you do contradict one another. If you say one thing, but that 
you live another way, your Samaritan will not give you the time of day. But even your Samaritan might pay close attention to you if what you say and what you do mirror one another, they complement one another. And in this moment, in this town, that's exactly what Philip did. What he said and what he did were in uh, agreement with each other. And so they paid close attention to him and a great revival broke loose. When you get down to verse 8, we are told that there was great joy in that city. Because whenever Jesus is Lord of the heart, there's joy in that heart. Whenever Jesus is Lord of the life, there's joy in that life. Whenever Jesus is Lord of the marriage, there's joy in the marriage. Whenever Jesus is Lord of the family, there's joy in that family. Whenever Jesus is Lord of the community, there's joy in that community. Whenever Jesus is Lord of the church, there's joy in that church. Whenever Jesus is Lord of the nation, there's joy in that nation. Whenever Jesus is Lord of the culture, there's joy in that culture. If there's no joy, chances are there's no Jesus. Because wherever there's Jesus... There's joy. Philip was told to go to a Samaritan city. He went, he preached, he lived the authentic Christian life, and revival broke loose. Even Samaritans paid close attention to this Greek-speaking Jew. In verse 26, the first verse of our passage, the angel of the Lord told Philip, I want you to go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he being Philip started out. I want to submit this morning that this is a story about an evangelist. In fact, uh, later in Acts 21 verse 8, Peter uh, Philip will be described as an evangelist. This is a story about what it looks like to be an evangelist of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are three characteristics in this story. The first one is this that an evangelist is desperately dependent upon the direction of the Spirit of the Lord. An evangelist is desperately dependent upon the direction of the Spirit of the Lord. Why would Philip go from a congregation of many to a congregation of one? Do you know what's so attractive about the Gaza Road? Nothing. Do you know what's appealing about the Gaza Road? Nothing. Do you know what the number one tourist attraction is on the Gaza Road? Nothing. It's 50 miles of nothingness. Homer, in his Odyssey, said that Ethiopia is the last place on the planet and Gaza is the last watering hole to the last place on the planet. I mean, there is nothing on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. There are no exit ramps. There are no billboards. There are no restaurants. Uh, there's no rest parks. There is nothing. There is nothing there. It is, it is dirt, rock, and sand, and more dirt, and more rock, and more sand. Why in the world would Philip leave a thriving ministry to many Samaritans in a particular city to go to a God-forsaken road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza where there's only one person on that road? Why would he do that? Because he was desperately dependent upon the direction of the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God told him to go east, he would have gone east. To go west, he would have gone west. To go faster, he would have gone faster. To go slower, he would have gone slower. He wanted desperately to be obedient to the direction of of the Spirit of God. Friend, that is a follower of Jesus. That is an evangelist. That is somebody who says, Jesus, I am your property. I am owned by you. You tell me what to do and I'll do it. You tell me where to go and I'll go. He left 
the Samaritan city, and he went to travel on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's at this point that you and I need to take note of the significant shift in the storytelling of Luke in the, in the, in the book of Acts. Luke, um, up until this point, had been talking about mass conversion. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 3,000 people are saved on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, another 2,000 people are saved when Peter and John preach. Massive numbers of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Luke wants us to know this is a, this is a mega movement of God. This is a, uh, a massive church movement of the Lord. And thousands upon thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ. But when Luke gets to chapters 8, 9, and 10, it's three chapters, it's three stories, it's three individuals. In Acts chapter 8, it's the story of the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapter 9, it's the story of salvation of the man named Saul, who later becomes known as Paul. In Acts chapter 10, it's the salvation of the Gentile man named Cornelius. Luke wants us as the reader to understand that people enter the kingdom of God one person at a time. People enter one person at a time. Thousands of people are being saved, but the way they're being saved is one person at a time. You come to Acts chapter eight, it's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch because salvation is granted to anyone regardless of condition, class, or creed. Salvation is, 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 is extended to anyone who just might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the very son of God. And so you come to Acts chapter eight and it's there that we're introduced to the anonymous man who's simply described as an Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know this man's name. But we know something about his country and about his condition. This man is an Ethiopian, which tells you that he is a chocolate man. He's a black man. He's from Ethiopia. I have a pastor friend who, when he comes to Acts chapter 8, he preaches a sermon, and he simply entitles it, When Dustin Met Denzel. And he said that, that Philip is like Dustin Hoffman the small Jewish man. And the Ethiopian is like Denzel Washington, uh, tall, dark, handsome. He's influential. He's wealthy. He's got star-studded good looks. This is the Ethiopian. He is somebody who has extreme influence. He is in charge of the treasury of Candace, of, of the queen of the Ethiopians. He is the minister of finance. He has a tremendous job. He has great wealth. The reason you know he has great wealth is because he personally owns the scroll of Isaiah. And parchments in those days were extremely costly. This man who has great wealth and great influence, he is well respected. He also is a man of great education. He can read the Hebrew language that the scroll is written on. He can read the scroll. He understands it. He knows that he's got a problem. He knows that this is speaking of someone. Is he speaking of himself or someone else? So he's reading this scroll. He's a very educated man. He's a wealthy man. He's a person of great influence. He, is a, he is a, uh, has a great job in the Ethiopian government. He is an Ethiopian. But it also tells us something about his condition. He is a eunuch. There's no easy way to say this. So I'll just tell you. 
To be a eunuch means that this man was castrated. It's at this moment that every man begins to shift in his seat just a little bit. We get uncomfortable. But this man was emasculated by either cutting or crushing. Now because of that, he had very little to no sex drive. Uh, He had no ability to procreate the human race. So in those days, a eunuch was someone, because of that, who was very trusted. He was entrusted with great responsibility because his only drive was the drive of his work, to do a job well done. And so many times, eunuchs were given prominent uh, jobs and, and positions, and such is the case of this man. However, this man knows that he's blemished. He knows that he's broken. Luke tells us he had had been to Jerusalem in hopes of worshiping God. He's a seeker, we may call him. And yet this man must be disappointed because um, it's Daryl Bach in his commentary who says this man's trip would have taken probably five months. He's on a five-month journey to Jerusalem in the hopes of worshiping God and then coming back home. And he's coming back home, and he would have been denied access into the sacred temple. Because according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, anyone who's been emasculated by cutting or crushing is denied access into the sacred assembly. So this man would not have been able to go probably simply because he's a foreigner, but also beyond that because of his blemished condition. So this man must be extremely disappointed. I mean, he went all this time. He was hoping to meet God. He was hoping to worship the God of the universe. And as he got there, he was denied access. Now he's on his way back home. He's trying to make heads or tails of what's going on in life. He's, he's reading a scroll from Isaiah the prophet, one of the greatest prophets in Jewish history. And as he's reading it, he can't understand it. This man has influence but no insight. He must be frustrated. He's got to be aggravated. It's at this moment that the Spirit of God tells Philip, go run beside that chariot. That chariot? Yes, that's the only one on the road, Philip. Go run beside that chariot. There's nobody else on the road. I don't know how large this man's entourage is, but he's in the fanciest chariot. Go run beside that chariot. Just stop and think about this for a moment. It is quite comical. This man is coming back from Jerusalem. He's the only one on the Gaza road. Um, His entourage, his chariot is kicking up some dirt. And all of a sudden, as he looks out the window of his chariot, there's a short Jewish man who's running as fast as his little legs would carry him. Right? And he looks over there and says, "What, what in the world? Why are you here? And Philip just asked him a question. You understand what you're reading? How can I? He replied. Unless somebody explains it to me. You must be sent from God because my life is falling apart and I need somebody who can give me some answers. I told you that these, this story is a story about an evangelist and there are three characteristics. The first one being that, a, that an evangelist is desperately dependent on the direction of the Lord. But secondly, An evangelist is eager and willing to run beside brokenness. An evangelist is eager and willing to run beside brokenness. Philip was willing to chase a chariot down the Gaza road simply because he's an evangelist of the the Lord, simply because the Spirit of God told him to. 
And as he runs, he realizes that I, I'm, I'm gonna go talk to a man and we really have very little in common. Um, when you compare Philip and the Ethiopian, uh, they have a different looking face. They're, they're of a completely different race. They're from different place on the planet. I mean, they are opposite ends of the spectrum. You can't get more uh, disconnected than Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But there's one thing that both those guys had in common. It's the same thing that you and I share with them. Brokenness. Every person is broken. All of us are sinful. And because of that sin, we are shattered. We are broken. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch, he was physically broken as well as spiritually broken. And most of us are the very same way. We are spiritually broken and we are physically broken. We are emotionally broken. We're financially broken. We're relationally broken. We are broken from the inside out. This is one thing that all of us have in common. This Ethiopian eunuch was broken. He was like Humpty Dumpty. You know, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty back together again. That is our nursery rhyme. Because all of us have had a great fall. We are all completely and utterly tainted and touched by sin. And there is nothing in this world that can put us back together again. There aren't enough cultural counselors. There's not enough governmental gurus. There cannot be enough royal remedies of our culture to put us back together again. In his book entitled Christ Center Preaching, Brian Chapel says to every preacher, when you stand and look at a crowd, this much you can guarantee yourself, you're looking at Swiss cheese. Because every person, every person has holes all in their life. Now we try to fill those holes with fame and fortune, relationships, power and prestige, satisfaction, contentment, pleasure. We try to fill the holes of our life with various things, but the reality is the hole is a gospel-sized hole. It is only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that can sufficiently and satisfactorily fill the gaping hole of our life. Everything else falls short. Everything else we try to stuff into our life, everything else we try to patch into our life, everything else we try to download into our life, everything else we try to plug into our life, it all, it doesn't measure up because we have gospel-sized holes. We have to be willing, like Philip, to run beside brokenness because regardless of the person we see, that person is just as broken as we are. And if we are the redeemed, then we know that Jesus satisfies that Jesus is more than enough and what we need in our life is what they need in their life Philip ran beside brokenness he was eager he was willing to do it now practically what does it look like to run beside brokenness practically it means that you leave room for questions the conversation initially was just a couple of questions do you understand what you're reading does life make sense is there something I can help you with? Are you troubled by anything? It's just a question. It's just a question. It's not a, it's not a defensive question. It's not a, a, a dogmatic question. It's just a, just a question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the man responded with a question. How can I unless someone explains it to me? 
You and I have to leave space for questions. Questions are essential. Your one has to be able to ask you some questions. Now, for most of us, we don't like questions because we think to ourselves, my one is going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. Let me say a couple things about that. For starters, you probably know more of the answers than you think you know because you have been discipled. You have read your Bible. You have been walking with Jesus for some length of time. He has equipped you with answers. So your one may ask you a question and it may shock you that you know more answers to their questions than you thought you did. But inevitably, your one's going to ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. My one asked me a question I don't know the answer to. We are placed in a community of faith. We don't have to go at this alone. That's why, that's why we call each other uh, brothers and sisters. We are faith family. So I can bring my unanswered questions to you, and you can help me hash out the answer to that question, and vice versa, because we together are better than we are by ourselves. So don't be afraid of asking questions, and don't be afraid of questions being asked of you. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be the expert. You just have to know the expert, and that's Jesus. And Jesus can help you answer the question or he can bring another brother, bring another sister along to help you hammer out what is this question and how should I respond? We as a church should never be afraid of any question. If we run beside brokenness, inevitably, we just might lead with questions, we might get bombarded with questions, but we run beside brokenness in the hopes that that person will invite us into their chariot. That, that person will invite us into their life. I, I can't make sense of what's going on in my culture. I, I can't make sense of, of what I'm experiencing and what I'm reading. Can you please shed some light on what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling, what I'm interpreting right here in front of me? All the joy when your one stops the chariot and enables you, invites you, implores you to come and sit in the chariot. A great story that illustrates this uh, comes from one of my best friends in ministry. His name is Paul Burton. For some of you, I've told the story before. Paul Burton's father was Ron Burton Sr. Ron Burton was the first draft pick of the New England Patriots back in the early 1960s. Ron Burton Sr.'s story is one of Humpty Dumpty. He was broken. Uh, he desperately wanted to play football. But in junior high and high school, coaches told him, no, you're too big, you're too slow. There's no way you can play football. Oh, but he kept asking, what's it going to take for me to get on your team? What's it going to take? What do I have to do? And one day the coach said, Ron, this summer, if you run seven miles every day, I'll let you on my football team in the fall. Now, he didn't think Ron would do it, but he didn't know the determination of this young man. Every morning, he woke up when it was early, before the sun peaked over the horizon, and Ron would run seven miles a day. He would cap it off with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Then he'd get ready and go to work. After three months of doing that, he showed up to school and nobody recognized him. He was slimmer, trimmer, he was faster and stronger than anybody else. They gave him the football, put him in the backfield, and they just let him run. Very few people could catch him. 
Those who were fast enough to catch him, they weren't strong enough to bring him down to the ground. He excelled in high school. He went on to Northwestern University, and there he excelled as a running back. He was drafted in the early 1960s, had a great career in the National Football League. He was the first draft pick of the New England Patriots. Mr. and Ms. Burton wanted to use their influence to help other people. And so uh, they purchased some property outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, it had some land. It had a nice house on it. And Mr. Burton said, every summer, I'm going to bring some inner city kids, some boys. They're going to come to camp. All summer long, I'm going to teach them how to be a better football player. But ultimately, I'm going to teach them how to be a better man. I'm going to teach them what it is to follow Jesus. He did that year after year after year. It started as a small group of guys. It grew bigger and bigger and bigger. Mr. and Ms. Burton have five children, four sons, one daughter. All five are beautiful and bold. They're successful in everything that they do. And they've inherited this ministry of now their deceased father. And they are children that are carrying on the torch. I came across Paul Burton, one of the sons, um, when I was getting my doctorate at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary outside of Boston, Massachusetts, Paul and I immediately hit it off. We sat in the back of the class. Uh, we instantly had a friendship. We've stayed connected throughout the years. He's invited me to come and preach at the Ron Burton Training Village. Now it's decade upon decade, year after year, where they identify mostly inner-city, at-risk student-athletes. Many of them are from Boston or the surrounding New England area, but now the ministry has been so favored of the Lord, it, is, it goes well beyond from coast to coast of the United States. They have young men that come every summer, and they give them the summer of their life after their sixth grade year all the way through their senior year of high school. And these young men are transformed by the power of God. They do a great job of telling the story. A great job of telling the story about Ron Burton Sr. And, and how he used to get up and run every day. Um, and guess what those campers do every morning? Those guys wake them up and they run seven miles. After they're done, they go to the mess hall and there's a spread of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They can eat as many as they want. I remember one of the years when Paul invited me to come up um, he asked me, he said, hey, uh, do you want to run tomorrow morning? I prayed about that for about four seconds. And I said, no, uh, God does not want me to run seven miles. He said, well, will you at least wake up when they run? I said, yeah, I think I can do that. He said, what, what if we got on a golf cart and we kind of rode around with them? I said, no, God wants me to ride a golf cart. So, so. Paul and I got on a golf cart. We positioned ourselves at one of those important turns of the seven-mile race. And we just sat there. And we were just encouragers. As people came up, of course, he would call them by name, and then I would call them by name as if I knew them. And then I would start clapping for them, and now on they would go. It's in that moment that Paul told me this story. You see that young man? Yeah. That man comes from a great Christian home. Mom and dad love Jesus, love him, love the family. He's a solid believer in Christ. You see that guy over there? Yeah. He's never known his dad. 
He's been coming to camp for years. He has so much hatred that's built up inside of him. You see that young man right there? Yeah. He has two moms. You see that guy right over there? Yeah. His parents are Muslim. I said, Paul, wait a minute. Do you interview these families before they come in? He said, you know we do. I said, do you tell them that you are a Christian camp? He said, you know I do. He said, we, we make no apologies about it, that we are a Christian camp. He said, and this is what the Muslim family told us. Our son knows how to hate. He needs to now learn Christian love. We want him to come to your camp. I said, Paul, there's nobody in our culture that would tell that story. He said, you're exactly right. It doesn't fit the national narrative, but I'm telling you, this is what God is doing. I said, man, in a span of 30 seconds, you just described the entire American culture. You got them right here outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Paul, do you ever get nervous, uncomfortable, about putting together all of these individuals from various backgrounds? And immediately, he said, no. I said, why don't you get nervous? He said, because our dad told us, don't you ever turn anybody away who wants to come to this camp because we just might be the only Jesus they ever see. You know what that translates into? Don't be afraid to run beside brokenness. Every person on that run, broken. Every person on that run, in need of Jesus. And what Ron Burton said to his children, I say to you, don't ever be afraid to let anybody in your life because you just might be the only Jesus that they ever see. This man, Philip, was willing to run beside brokenness. He simply led with a question. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, unless somebody explains it to me? Well, I can give it a shot. He ordered for the chariot to be stopped. He invited Philip to come, and beginning at that very passage of Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He was reading the scroll of Isaiah. It was Isaiah 53. As a lamb before a shear is silent, so this man did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Who is this man talking about, himself or someone else? Asked the Ethiopian eunuch. And beginning with that very passage of Scripture, meeting him exactly where he was, he told him the good news, the euangelion of Jesus. The third characteristic is that an evangelist is rooted in the scripture because the Bible reveals our need for Jesus the Christ. Any evangelist worth his or her salt is always rooted in the scripture because it's in the scripture that we see ourselves for who we are. It's in the scripture that we see Jesus for who he is. It's in the scripture that we see our desperate need for salvation that only Jesus Christ can offer. So we are rooted in the scripture because the Bible reveals our desperate need for Jesus Christ. I'm sure that as they unrolled Isaiah 53, um, Philip began to talk about this Jesus who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are all healed. After they got through with Isaiah 53, they probably unrolled Isaiah 54, and then they unpacked Isaiah 55. 
And then they probably unrolled the scroll to Isaiah 56. After all, it is 50 miles of nothingness. Uh, what else are you going to do when you're on the Gaza Road except for open the Bible and talk about Jesus? So chapter by chapter they went. They probably got to Isaiah 56. Have you ever read Isaiah 56? Have you ever read Isaiah 56 verses 3, 4, and 5? Let no foreigner who, was bound, who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Don't miss the irony. Here in Isaiah 56, as the scroll is being unrolled, so the, uh, the, the, the eyes of faith are being illuminated there in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip is saying, look, God had you on his mind when he told Isaiah to write this some 700 years uh, before this very moment. So you were on God's mind because the Bible is a mirror. It shows us who we are. It shows us our need for God. And God will give you a name that's better than sons and daughters. God will give you a name that will be written in his temple. You were denied access into the temple of Jerusalem, but God's temple you'll be invited into because God says he will not cut you off. You may be a dry tree. You may be someone who the world has just shoved aside and pushed away, but God says, I've included you into my family. I've included you because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ goes out to anyone who might believe. The world says to this Ethiopian, you're a nobody, but God says you're a somebody. The world says you ought to be ashamed of yourself, but God says you ought to be saved by my holy name. The world ridicules you, but God has redeemed you. God has given you a name, friend. God has given you a place, my friend. God has given you meaning in life, my friend, because the world may cut you off, but God never will cut you off. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you ask yourself, what is the gospel? Here is a simple statement. That the gospel is God's salvation of grace extended to you regardless of your brokenness. That's the gospel. The gospel is God's salvation of grace in Jesus Christ that's extended to you regardless of your brokenness. The Ethiopian knew he was broken. He knew that God had supplied his salvation. They came to water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Sounds like a great idea, Philip said. The Ethiopian ordered for the chariot to be stopped. Together they went down into the water. Philip baptized the Ethiopian. As he was bringing the eunuch back up out of the water, the Spirit of God snatched Philip away. Now that would startle you and me, but not the Ethiopian. He went home rejoicing. He went home rejoicing. Why? Because when Jesus is Lord of the life, there's joy in that life. Many church historians say that it's this Ethiopian eunuch who goes back to Ethiopia, single-handedly wins the country for Christ. Don't ever think to yourself, I can't do anything that will impact the kingdom. Don't ever think to yourself, don't ever sell yourself short. Because God can use you. If he can use the Ethiopian eunuch, he can certainly use you. 
Because the church's greatest evangelistic tool is a person who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. We are told that Philip went to Azotus and then on to Caesarea. The last picture we have of Philip in Acts chapter 8 is that he is preaching the gospel in Caesarea. The next time we find him is in Acts chapter 21 verse 8. And it's there that Philip is in Caesarea. And this is how Philip is described in Acts 21, verse 8. Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. Luke wants us to know exactly who this Philip is. He's one of the seven. The seven selected in Acts chapter 6 to minister to the widows there in Jerusalem. He's one of the seven. But, But even more importantly than that, he's the evangelist. What does that tell you? It tells you that for the last 20 years of his life, He had been doing the same thing he did on the Gaza Road. He was an evangelist, desperately dependent on the direction of the Lord, eager and willing to run beside brokenness, rooted in the Scripture because the Bible reveals our need for Jesus the Christ. He was an evangelist. Throughout the years, he would meet one person, tell them the gospel, they would enter the kingdom. He would meet another one, tell them the gospel, they'd enter the kingdom. He would meet another one, tell them the gospel, enter the kingdom. He did this consistently over the next 20 years of his life. My friends, I come to the conclusion of this seven-part sermon series. What the Bible says of Philip, I want the Bible to say of me. I want the Bible to say of you. These are men and women who are evangelists of the Lord Jesus Christ. How often do you think of yourself as an evangelist? Oh, you think of yourself as a mom or a dad. You think of yourself as a hard worker. You think of yourself as a coach. You think of yourself as a taxi driver. You think of yourself in a host of ways. How often do you think of yourself as an evangelist? An evangelist is a person who is desperately dependent on the direction of the Lord, one who's eager and willing to run beside brokenness, one who is rooted in the scripture for the Bible reveals our need for Jesus the Christ. Friend, don't stop looking for your one. The church's greatest evangelistic tool is a person who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, today I invite you I want to run beside your chariot. I want to ask for you to stop and invite me to come in and invite me or one of the pastors to just share with you about who Jesus is. If you're not a Christian, please, this morning, will you consider giving your life to Christ? If you are a believer, you're an evangelist. You're part of the redeemed. Can I ask you one final question? Are you really passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough? Are you really passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough? It is so easy on Sunday morning to say, yes, yes, pastor. I am passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. If you really are, then you will be desperately dependent on the direction of the Spirit of God. You will chase chariots up and down Highway 31. And you will be rooted in the scripture because you'll be convinced that the Bible and the Bible alone reveals every person's need for Christ. I don't know about you, but if I can just be real honest, 
I need a healthy dose of being passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. There are some days that I really am persuaded. Then there are other days that by my actions, I don't reveal the depth of passion that I need to have. And maybe that's you, friend. And today, as we conclude this series, maybe you just need to come and say, Lord, please help me. Help me to be the evangelistic tool in your hands that I'm a person who's passionately persuaded that you are enough and it'll be evident not just in my lips but in my life, not just in my talk but in my walk, that I will be passionately persuaded and it'll be evident to everybody. And it just might be there are some chariots that come to a screeching halt and invite you to come and share. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. We pray that you will speak to us, help us to respond in obedience. Oh, Lord, we pray that if there's one who is lost, that today they will be found. For those of us who are like Philip, uh, we are saved. We're part of the redeemed. Help us to be men and women who are passionately persuaded that you, Lord Jesus, you are enough. And it impacts daily life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.